Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from the one and only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, guys. If you could become any animal in the world, any animal, which one would you choose? It's a big question. A lot of wonderful animals in God's creation, aren't there? Maybe like Isaiah, you want to soar on wings like an eagle, right? Maybe like Amos, the prophet Amos, the lion is your animal of choice because you love the strength and the beauty of the king of the jungle. Maybe you're more like the prophet Elisha, where you boast in the bear because when it comes to obstacles, you maim and you maul. You get them out of your way, right? Or if your name is Caleb, which in Hebrew means dog, you just might choose to be a sweet, adorable little dog. Oh, now there's so many animals out there, right? Get your minds going what you might be. So how many of you then would like to become a worm? That's the first animal you thought of, isn't it? A worm. No? You're all looking at me like I'm crazy, and rightfully so. And that's what I thought. None of you are worm wannabes, and I don't blame you. Worms, they, they don't have any arms. They don't have any legs. They don't have any eyes. They're small. They're insignificant. And if you ask me, well, worms probably don't even have the best of personalities. Who would want to be a worm? You know, in Scripture, worm means cursed by God. Here in this world, no one ever stops their car and says, hey, everyone, take a look out that window. Look at the worms. Look at those things. And when have you ever read an editorial that passionately argued that we must cease the ongoing genocidal atrocity taking place in our lakes and rivers? Worms deserve better. Those cute creatures should not be skewered on hooks so they can be fed to fish. Jeff, you wrote that one, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. And how about a team's mascot? Have you ever seen a worm as a mascot for a high school team? The Washington University Worms, right? Let's go Worms! If you ask our principal, though, it's quite the name. He comes from Worms, Nebraska. I have to give him a little bit of that tonight when he comes to worship. Well, our text from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 41, 14, it, got, it calls God's people a worm. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. Wow. Why does God call the exilic community, those that have been exiled, sent off to Babylon, why does he call them a worm? Didn't God know? Didn't he get the memo that calling someone a worm isn't really a good way to boost self-esteem? It's not really a good way to encourage the people to get up and going. If I stand up here and call you all worms and then look for volunteers, probably not going to get many hands. There they are in Isaiah 40 to 55, buried under the boots of Babylon. The exiles, not only are they called worms, they're called weak they're called weary. They're called bruised reeds, smoldering wicks. They're called deaf and blind. They're called childless, widowed, divorced, a stubborn rebel from birth. God has, God has a worm for all of that, a word for all of that. Worm. Oh, worm. You worm, Jacob. The parallel thought in our text equates, oh, worm, Jacob, with those who are dead. Isaiah's poetic parallelism, it invites us to compare dead people with worms. Dead people buried in the ground. Where do you find worms? In the ground. Dead people, they get stepped on. So are worms. 
Dead people surrounded by dirt. So are worms. Dead people are ignored, often and too soon forgotten. So are worms. You see, the exiles, the Israelites who are in Babylon, they see terror on every side. That patriarchal promise given to Abraham, that Davidic covenant given to King David, those promises, they appear to them at this point null and void. God has forgotten about them. They're all gone. The captives are up in a culture where their most treasured narratives, where all their liturgies are being mocked by the Babylonians, where they're being trivialized, or they're being dismissed as irrelevant. Everything had been swallowed up by that beast called Babylon. This hopelessness is really epitomized in Psalm 22, verse 1, where King David wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you know Psalm 22, you know in verse 6, then what does he say? I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Now, what should I think of myself when I am captive to sin, when I am so far from the Father, when I don't, as the prophet Micah calls us to do, when I don't act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with my God, when I'm not aflame with holiness and I feel no compassion for the lost, when I am to think of myself and I take no delight in the word, when I recoil from prayer, when I harbor lustful thoughts, when I pant for the praises of people, when I am deceptive, mean-spirited, petty, and vindictive, when I'm acting that way in so many other sinful ways, God has a word for that worm. Now, you might be thinking, Pastor, now, come on, didn't you get that memo? Calling people a worm, that's not a way to boost their self-esteem. That's no way to encourage them to get up and get going. Yeah, you're right, I didn't get that memo at seminary. They didn't teach me that. What did they teach me? They taught me that thinking highly of ourselves has nothing to do with God's word. Rather, he longs for us to cry out with that prophet Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips, or to cry out with Job, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, or with the apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, this is what Lent is all about. That's why we're clothed in black tonight, today. Lent is all about acknowledging who we are in God's sights apart from Christ, sinful and unclean in thought, word, and deed. Lent is when we confess these sins, when we grieve over these sins, when we repent before the Almighty God. Because you see, only people who are dead and buried, only people who are surrounded by dirt, cry. only they cry out for life and resurrection. Only when we realize our place, do we cry out for God's resurrection? Hear the word again from Isaiah 41, 14. It says, do not be afraid, O worm, Jacob, O dead ones of Israel. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I'm the one who helps you. That is his promise. The Lord isn't a football coach trying to rally his team to win one for the Gipper. He's not some talk show host who wants you to feel warm and fuzzy all over. Our God is not some sentimental granddaddy who helps you real, who helps you, the people who help themselves, right? It's not God. He's not the one that's just waiting for you to be good enough. He's your redeemer. He's the Holy One of Israel. 
That word redeemer appears here in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. Here we get it for the first time. But in these 15 chapters written to the exiles in Babylon, we get the word redeemer 18 more times. The Israelites knew a redeemer as the next of kin relative, the one who helped you when you'd lost everything, the one who would buy back your inheritance, who would free you from slavery, the one who would pay off your debts. Whatever had gone bad in your life, your kinsman redeemer will make good on your behalf. So coupled with redeemers, that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, it appears in the book of Isaiah 25 times and only seven more times in the rest of the Old Testament. He is, as the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. It means the Lord is completely set apart. He is different from everyone and everything else in all of creation. And so Isaiah couples your Redeemer, the completely imminent one, with the Holy One of Israel, the completely transcendent one. Your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. In this way, Isaiah announces that the Lord alone is able to bring about every power in the universe for a single, loving, furious, relentless goal to bring you love and life, to bring you forgiveness and salvation. And how did he do it? Well, you know the story in the fullness of time. God became our next of kin redeemer, literally. He took on flesh. Then he took another step. He became dirty, despised, dismissed. And if that wasn't enough, he took yet one more, an almost incomprehensible step. One for the ages. Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in his native Aramaic language, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then in verse six, I am a worm and not a man. There is Jesus quoting Psalm 22 while nailed to a tree, his body bent and twisted, his bloody, horrific mess of a body. There is Jesus being mocked and ridiculed, there he is being abandoned. You know what? God has a word for that. Worm. And Jesus did all of that for you. And so God's transforming word to us is exactly this. Isaiah 41. See, I am making you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them, reduce the hills to chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. God's worms become mountain movers. The lowly and the despised are loved and lifted up. Our Lenten sackcloth and ashes, they're not the last word. No, on Easter they'll be exchanged for baptismal robes, washed white in the blood of Jesus. The blind will see the lame will walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. You know, God has a word for that, and his word is grace. We enter the Lenten season as worms. We arise on Easter full of God's grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness, all because Jesus took on all of that and became a worm for you. May that carry you through this Lenten season in his name. Amen.